0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Hello, you're listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to KWMR listeners the first Monday of every month from Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. On Ocean Currents, we talk about our blue part of the planet, talking with experts about ocean conservation, science-compatible uses, issues, health, natural history, exploration, and expeditions that face hard-to-fathom challenges in remote areas of the ocean— My hope is that you'll become even more ocean literate and appreciate and understand how precious this vital part of our planet is and how we are extremely interconnected with its health and our health in return. Here on the west coast of the United States, we have a very special situation. We have an incredible oceanographic system that provides for a diverse food web from the tiniest of phytoplankton to the largest animal on earth, which is the focus of our show today, the blue whale. In California alone, there are four national marine sanctuaries designated at different times to help add protections to vital habitats for a diversity of marine life. There are many differences between each of these areas, but one thing that ties them together is that each of them are destination feeding areas for the endangered blue whale. Each of these areas have incredible upwelling centers where nutrients are abundant and krill abounds. My guest today is freelance writer, author, and editor Dan Bortolotti, who is the author of seven non-fiction books and has written magazines and newspapers in Canada and the U.S. His books for youth feature endangered species like tigers and pandas, but also exploration of planets and the sport of baseball, as well as the humanitarian organization Doctors Without Borders. Dan's most recent book is Wild Blue, A Natural History of the Blue Whale, just published in Canada by Thomas Allen Publishers and in the U.S. by Thomas Dunn Books. Wild Blue, A Natural History of the World's Largest Animal, is the first comprehensive portrait of the blue whale, the largest creature that has ever lived on Earth. The book features equal parts science as well as history. Blue Whale's Wild Blue offers a journey into the world of an animal that was pushed to the brink of extinction and is slowly making its way back. I was so excited to dive into this book as I am in absolute awe of this animal and have been privileged to see them in our national marine sanctuaries off the coast here in California. And I was just dying to learn more about them. So this book has definitely helped satisfy my curiosity. So I'd like to welcome Dan Bordolotti to Ocean Currents. Thanks, Dan, for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Dan, some of your earlier books are written for younger ages of 10 and up, and then you jump to an older audience in your last two books. How did you get interested in blue whales?
1: Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, I I wrote a couple of books uh, several years ago uh, for children on endangered species. Um, I I wrote a book on tigers and another one on pandas, and then the publisher asked me to do, uh, or to edit rather, the other 10 books in the series. So I had a chance to really get into uh, the whole notion of conservation and, uh, and and the work that many scientists were doing to protect animals. One of the books that I worked on in that series was on whales in general, uh, and there was a whole section on blue whales. And the author had made a comment in, in his section that where he said the the mysteries surrounding blue whales still vastly outnumber what we know about them. And I remember reading that and being really struck by it. I, said, I mean, this is an animal that is... You know, 80, 90. The largest ones were 100 feet long. Uh, The largest animal that's ever lived, even heavier than any dinosaur that's ever walked the earth, and yet we don't know some really basic things about them. And and that really surprised me because I know, having you know, done writing about astronomy and other types of biology and things like this, we know, you know, what constituents are in the atmosphere of Pluto. You know, billions of miles away, we know, we understand you know, what the movements that honeybees make when they return to the hive, what they mean and what they indicate. So science understands a lot of these things, and yet we don't know how many blue whales are left in the world. We don't know where they go in the winter time. We don't know how they find their food. And so I really became interested in not only uh, the animals themselves, but, but the struggles involved in learning more about them, which, you know, are legion when it comes to whales, something I came to appreciate during the research for the book.
0: This is an animal of superlatives, and you write some great details about their size and weight and some great comparisons and how they feed. What are your favorite details about blue whales?
1: Well, I I should start by saying that a lot of the the numbers that you will see in reference books and popular articles are exaggerated. I mean, the one that you, you hear all the time is blue whales can be 100 feet long. And that is true as far as it goes, but but I like to say that it's it's a bit like looking up human in an encyclopedia and saying that humans can be more than 8 feet tall, which is true as far as it goes, but is really misleading. Um, the vast majority of blue whales never even approach that size. Only maybe one in several thousand would have exceeded 100 feet, and even that would have only been in the Antarctic. But putting that aside... Um, Uh, You know, I think most people can visualize uh, length. And if we say, for example, that a blue whale can be 80 or 90 feet maximum, if you're a baseball fan, you know that's the distance between home plate and first base. So it's a sort of a distance that you can visualize. But the the one I really tried to come up with a metaphor for was the weight of a blue whale, Um, you know, which can be 100 tons. The largest ones may have been up to 200 tons. So, you know, 400,000 pounds. Well, how do we make sense of that? So the, the analogy that I came up with in the book was if you imagine, and I, I keep coming back to sports analogies here because I think that there's things people understand, but if you imagine, like, there are 30 teams in the National Hockey League and there are 30 Major League Baseball teams, and there are about 24 players on each team. So if you add all of that up, that's about 1,440 players. And the average weight of a Major League Hockey and Baseball player is somewhere around 205 pounds. So if you took the entire National Hockey League and every Major League Baseball team and put them on a scale, it would weigh about 148 tons, which is about well well, well within the range of a large female blue whale, a single whale.
0: Wow. It's amazing. How do you think they weighed blue whales? I mean, you know, we don't have scales for these things. Do you think it's yeah. just based on proportions? Um,
1: in part, yeah. There are certain uh, techniques that biologists can use. For example, if you double the weight of a whale, you typically... Now, I want to get the math right here, but it it varies. If you double it, you're certainly not doubling the weight. You're increasing it far more than that. Um, But the way they weighed them in the past was to cut them into pieces and weigh them piece by piece. It was the only way to do it. Mm. But, of course, whenever you do that, you lose bodily fluids, and so you you have to then estimate how much blood and internal organs and things like this uh, are added to the weight. And so, you know, in that way... um, uh, certainly, weighing and, and even length measurements were notoriously suspect during the whaling era because there are different ways to measure the length of a whale, too. I mean, if you, especially an animal as large as a blue whale, if you were to put a tape measure on its snout and then follow the arch of its back and measure it to the end, that would be quite a longer distance than if you were to measure it in a strictly straight line because, right, the, the curvature of its body would add, in the case of a blue whale, as much as several feet. Uh, if you measured it from tip to the t- or the uh, tips of its tail rather, as opposed to the notch between its tail flukes, which is actually the zoologically correct way to measure a whale, you're also adding a few feet. So that's why when you when you read reports about whalers killed a, an animal that they claim was 110 feet long, you have to take that with a big grain of salt.
0: It's interesting. Mm-hmm. So where exactly do blue whales live? Are they li- Do they live in all parts of the ocean as far as our entire planet, or are there specific areas that they concentrate I know we have some here in California that come up and down the coast, but that was something interesting in the book to realize, wow, they, they're really in different regions.
1: Yeah, they, I mean, that's another thing that you will often read, and, you know, in popular articles they'll say blue whales inhabit all of the world's oceans. And, again, true as far as it goes, but but highly misleading. That they're really only about... A dozen maybe fifteen places in the world where you can reliably see blue whales at any at any at some point during the year, uh, as you mentioned uh they're quite common off of southern California. they range from about the Gulf of the Farallones area to um, southern california um, the the uh, santa barbara channel and you can also find those same whales will then move south to uh, Mexico and possibly as far well we know actually now as far as uh as Costa Rica on the Pacific side. Uh, And those whales will also range as far north as uh, British Columbia and Alaska. Um, They can be found off of uh, southern Chile as well, uh, in the southern hemisphere. Uh, In the northern hemisphere, the other places you'll find them is in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada. You can find them in the North Atlantic, off of Iceland and Greenland, off the Azores. Uh, And then there's a few places in the Indian Ocean where they can be found off Madagascar, uh, off Sri Lanka, Indonesia and southwestern Australia. And then, of course, there is a formerly enormous but uh, now very small population of blue whales in the Antarctic that mm-hmm. is rarely encountered and not studied as much as, as some of the other places in you know, more accessible areas.
0: Right, hard to get to those areas.
1: Yeah, it's very expensive and difficult. And, uh, and you know, there has been some research in, in Antarctic blue whales again more recently, but it's very difficult and expensive to mount expeditions there.
0: Mm-hmm. So a lot of those places you were talking about must be areas where there are high densities of krill, at least in the feeding areas of these animals. And that was a really neat part of the book is learning so much about their feeding strategies and some of the biologists you talked with. Mm -hmm. One of the facts that I just thought was so cool was about their buoyancy when they dive. Um, when they die for food going down, and they become negatively buoyant. And I just imagine this torpedo sinking um, to the bottom. How did we learn about that? I mean, how do we learn about these animals? I can imagine, I mean, just the length of one of these whales is basically a safe scuba dive for a recreational diver. That's right. Um, so from head to toe. But so how do we learn about their diving strategies?
1: Well, this, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, how difficult it is to study the behavior of whales because they spend so much of their time underwater that what they do once they are submerged is, or at least until recently, was a mystery. So in this case, the, the way they learned that was by attaching uh, devices, what they call bioacoustic probes, the back of the whale. So this is like a small torpedo-shaped instrument, maybe a foot long or so, and it contains uh, a depth sensor. So it can tell uh, what depth the whale is diving to and how long it stays at those depths. Uh, it's attached to the back of the whale with a suction cup, which is very difficult to do. Uh, I witnessed it several times during the research where the you know researcher needs to drive up, drive the boat alongside the whale, wait for it to surface, and then slap this Suction cup tag onto the back of the whale, and then you know dislodge the pole and let the whale swim away. the The tag will stay on for anywhere from a few minutes to a few days, hopefully a few hours at least to get some some data. So in this case, what they did was they attached these dive uh, sensors to the back of the whale and then recovered them and downloaded or uploaded the data onto their computers. And what what they were able to detect was first of all that the whales were diving much deeper than anybody knew. Mm. People figured that you know, blue whales might be feeding at a depth of, of 100 meters or 100 yards or so. Uh, they now know that they can, they can dive at least three times that. So they may be feeding as deep as 1,000 feet. Wow. And um, what, what they are doing, what, what, what they were able to do was graph this data so you could see the whale moving up and down, you know, in the plane of the water. And what they found was there was a long initial dive so they, the whales could get right down. What they learned was they went actually below the krill. The krill tend to aggregate at depth, right? So they they, they don't like light, so they don't like to come near the surface. So they move uh, at depth, and then they um, uh, gather into tightly knit groups, which is perfect for whales because it makes it easy for them to, uh, you know, go after densely packed krill rather than diffuse um, uh, swarms. So Mm -hmm. what they will do is they'll go right underneath the krill, and then they, will go, then they will lunge upward towards the surface into the krill and, and swallow it and then go down and do that again. So what you see when you graph that is like the sawtooth pattern of the whale lunging up, then sinking a bit, lunging up, sinking a bit. They'll do this four, five, six times, and then they'll return to the surface.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that they would return to the surface at the end of a couple dives.
1: Well, they use so much energy when they're down there feeding that they have to come back to the surface to get oxygen. And uh, this was, um, but but to get back to your first question about how we knew that they were negatively buoyant, mm-hmm. this is a really interesting one, and I think it ended up coming out of the book, but it was something that I learned during the research. Was that, um, that part of it was they and that they attached a, uh, a camera to the back of a blue whale. This is the Critter Cam, which a lot of people may be familiar with.
0: Yes, I've seen that blue March whale of cam. The
1: penguins and some other uh, uh, films have used it, but there was a modified Critter Cam that they uh, attached to the back of a whale. And they were able to follow this whale as it died. But because the whale is so big and the camera is so small, it was very difficult to detect any movement in the whale. So they weren't sure whether the whale was gliding down or whether it was actually beating its flukes. And I spoke to the scientist who had analyzed this data, and she said, you know what, then I had this brainwave. And I remembered that, you know, when we studied hummingbirds, for example, nobody understood how hummingbird wings actually worked until they were able to shoot video and then slow the video down drastically so they could see that you know a hummingbird's wing actually traces a figure eight as it moves. But nobody was able to tell that until they could slow it down. Well, With blue whales, it was the opposite problem. They were so big, and their undulating fluke beats were so slow that they had to actually speed up the film in order to notice the fluke beats. So what they did was they they sped up the film, and then that made it quite obvious, and you could see that the animal would beat its flukes vigorously right after its initial dive, and then that would stop, and the whale would would sink. So in other words, what they seem to be doing is using less oxygen by allowing themselves to sink rather than furiously. Like you can imagine if it was a highly buoyant animal, it would have to work very hard to get down to that depth. So it has... Somehow adapted by, uh, at a certain depth, being able to compress its body enough that it becomes negatively buoyant and it actually just sinks.
0: That's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Really cool to think about and visualize.
1: Yes, and uh, and a bit scary when you when you 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 know helps you understand it. If the animal was sick or in some way impaired, it would be very difficult for it to get back to the surface. So those animals are going to be really impaired when it comes to feeding, um, because the the energy you know expenditure of uh, sinking to that depth. And then, of course, because you're negatively buoyant, you've got to work extra hard to get back up to the surface. Mm-hmm. would be very difficult and taxing for these animals. And, uh, you know, they have found, for example, that, you know, the models predict blue whales should be able to stay underwater for about 30 minutes or more. But in fact, they only stay under oftentimes when they're feeding for, you know, eight or 10 minutes. Yeah. And the reason is just because they're working so hard. You know, you can imagine a a person trying to hold their breath, well, it's easy enough to hold your breath standing still, but try holding your breath and then running up and down the stairs, and you get some appreciation for how difficult it must be for them. Uh, and and they have to get up to the surface to catch their breath more quickly than, than one might expect.
0: Definitely. I've experienced that myself. <laughs> um, the other thing that was really interesting is following up after they feed on the krill is... And I've always wondered this myself. Okay, we know they have, they are baleen feeders, and they strain the water out, and the krill stays behind. And then, the krill is in, trapped inside their mouth. How do they get the krill from their the tips of the baleen down to their stomach?
1: Well, it's a great question. I wish I had an answer for you, but uh, you know, this is one of those processes that is a complete mystery because. Um, Well, as you can imagine, how do you know what's going on inside a blue whale's mouth, right? I mean, once it lunges and takes this enormous mouthful of water and prey, closes its mouth, well, what does it do? But there have been three basic suggestions for how to do it. And and, and the analogy I like is that you can imagine a person who uh, uses a a net to uh, to skim the scum off of a swimming pool. Well, then how does he get that scum out of the net, right? There's a couple ways. You can backwash it. By forcing water through the other way, it's not clear how exactly a whale might do that, but they might somehow be able to, um, you know, move water through their mouth in the opposite direction, and in order to dislodge the prey from the baleen, and then you know, direct it down towards their throat. They might be able to shake it by, uh, and I know gray whales, I believe, sometimes do this. They'll they'll shake their head or move it in such a way that the that the prey dislodges itself. But the, the leading candidate for how blue whales this is that they seem to scrape it off with their tongue. Hmm. And, you know, uh, people who have, like, been to marine land or SeaWorld and seen, like, uh, killer whales like put their tongue out, you know, you might get misled into thinking that a, a baleen whale's tongue is, you know, sort of muscular like our own tongues. But, in fact, they're entirely different. The, the baleen whale's tongue is really a bizarre <laughs> structure. I mean, the best way to imagine it would be like a surgical glove. If you put your hand into a surgical glove and then pulled it back out so it inverted itself, that is how a rorqual or a baleen whale's tongue works. And they believe that what goes on is when the whale opens its mouth, its tongue then lines the back of its throat. It moves into the back almost like a a plastic bag would. And then when the animal gulps the krill, closes its mouth, and ejects that seawater, it can then move the tongue back out, you know, like turn it back inside or uh, from being outside inside out right it can reverse it and then somehow shake that krill off of the uh, uh off of the baleen, and then direct it back towards its throat and somehow tip its head and get it into its gut but i mean most of that is speculation and it's based on um looking at the anatomy on dead whales. But no one has ever seen that action actually accomplished. And one of the scientists joked with me that he wanted to build what he called a krill cam. I
0: read that. I loved that.
1: (laughs) I thought that was a great idea. You build these mini cameras and throw them into the water and hope the whales would swallow them and that would all... uh, I don't know how he would recover the uh, the cameras, but apparently that would be able to, to uh, solve the mystery.
0: Who knows? But. You know, one thing about krill, I mean, these are pretty small little animals. And one thing I've read is that they have one of the largest diurnal migrations among the animal kingdom based on their body size. Mm-hmm. And they come up in the water column to feed on phytoplankton, but they go down to those depths in deep areas and canyons and over the shelf And they go up and down every single day. For an an animal that's only a couple centimeters, it's pretty incredible migration. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to appreciate about krill.
1: They're they're fascinating little creatures, and and, and they drive so many, you know, marine food chains. Uh, uh, In in the case of blue whales, it's kind of interesting. I mean, as, as the largest animal on the planet, their exclusive prey is this tiny little animal. And it's a very, very simple food chain. I mean, most mammals eat you know, a variety of foods and they change their prey depending on the season and the location where they live. Blue whales will feed on various species of krill depending on where they live. But worldwide, it it is virtually their only food.
0: As far as your research goes, you talked about this a little bit in your book. How did blue whales, and I guess it would be all baleen whales in general, evolve to become this, this specialized feeder Eating this way versus the toothed whales—they have teeth. It's, I'm really curious as to what you've re- learned and wrote about as far as the, the evolution of the baleen whale to eat mm-hmm. these tiny little critters.
1: I, I thought this was really one of the most fascinating questions. You know, um, you often look at an animal's adaptations, and, and it, you know, it makes perfect sense why they evolved certain ways. You know, why birds evolved beaks that were a certain shape to that are you know um, allow them to, to uh, feed on certain things. But one of the things I always ask is, you know, what evolutionary advantage could possibly come from, you know, being 90 feet long <laughs> being and being as heavy as, you know, three professional sports leagues? I, I don't it, – it, it isn't immediately obvious. I mean, you would say, well, large size, you know, you would be able to fend off predators and there'd be some benefit for uh, regulating body temperature in cold waters. But with blue whales, it's so, it's so much overkill. I mean, whales don't need to be even – remotely that large in order to be safe from those dangers so so the question is well why did they evolve to become so big and and this is this is really the answer to the question that you asked so what i was able to piece together was um the, the the two main families of whales baleen whales and tooth whales probably split off around 35 million years ago and that was about the same time that the continents had split apart in the southern hemisphere so what is now South America and the Antarctic continent broke apart and opened up this expanse that is now the Southern Ocean. And the climate began to change there. The water was a bit cooler, and what it gave rise to was a lot of phytoplankton, or tiny plants, which then spawned these enormous uh, aggregations of krill. And so we can imagine in the Southern Ocean that that, And even to this day, sometimes patches of krill in the Southern Ocean can be absolutely huge, tens or hundreds, even, square miles. So there was this enormous resource that was ripe for being exploited by some kind of predator. But the main thing that you have to understand about krill is that even though the patches can be huge and it can be this incredibly uh, rich resource, it's very patchy. So it may appear in one area in, you know, incredible density, but, you know, a, a few dozen miles away, there might be nothing. Or there might be a huge, dense patch there one week, and mm-hmm. the next week there will be none. And so you had this very rich but unreliable and patchy resource. So, so you had to keep that in mind when you, we when you, when you think about how these animals evolved. So basically, for a predator to exploit a prey like that, they needed to have three things. First of all, the animal would need to travel great distances as it looked for food, and it would need to be, to be able to do that without expending a tremendous amount of energy. Because as I said, you might have a rich food source in one place, but the next one is a couple of hundred miles away. So you need to be able to have some you know, capacity to get from place to place. And while you're traveling from place to place looking for this patchy food resource, you also need to have the ability to store a lot of energy. And be able to live off your fat stores and fast for days and weeks, even months at a time. Okay, so those are two things. And the third thing is, once you get to that patch, you need to be big enough to uh, ingest huge quantities of the krill uh, efficiently, I mean, you can imagine if you were hungry and I gave you a big bowl of rice, but told you you were only allowed to eat one grain at a time, it wouldn 't be a terribly right. <laughs> useful resource for you you 'd have to be able to have you know a spoon or be able to grip it with both hands or whatever. So if you look at those three things and the ability to travel great distance, the ability to live off stores of fat, and the ability to ingest large quantities of a small creature, you know the common denominator there is enormous body size, and that 's exactly what happened, and that's why the largest baleen whales seem to evolve in the southern hemisphere where that krill population was, because they were able to take advantage of that uh, enormous but you know, potentially unreliable prey resource. And, and natural selection just happened to shape the blue whales into the, you know, the biggest creatures that allowed them to exploit it more than even the others. And in fact, if you look at other baleen whales, many of which are very large, blue whales are by far the fussiest feeders of all of them. I mean, fin whales, minke whales, humpbacks, and other, you know, baleen whales have a much more varied diet. They will eat krill, but they also eat fish, whereas blue whales are are not known to ever eat fish. So uh, they really have become the ultimate specialist.
0: That's very interesting. In the last few years here on the West Coast, we haven't had super robust krill populations, and the blue whales didn't show up until... Uh, the krill came back, and it was really interesting. They were really staying south in the southern Channel Islands area where there was krill while they were trying to feed. So that was pretty, pretty interesting seeing that and explaining that to people. If the food's not here, the blue whales aren't going to be here. So.
1: Well, that's the only reason that they show up in the summer is, is to chase the food. So, you know, as you said, and and, and that's why what, what we've come to understand in the last several years is that, you know, there are places where blue whales were once abundant and they're not seen anymore. And, you know, initially people were thinking, well, where are these animals going? I mean, are they they dead? You know, is the animal uh, highly endangered? Have we wiped them out? Um, But we're starting to understand that, no, usually the case is that the oceanography has changed in some way. There's less plankton equals less krill equals fewer blue whales. And, um, you know, some places like, for example, off of British Columbia and Alaska, and there's one place in the um, Gulf of St. Lawrence here in Canada where, uh, you know, uh, scientists actually began studying blue whales. It was their initial study site. Well, there are no blue whales in that area anymore. And, you know, initially people were wondering, well, where have they all gone? And the answer just seems to be they've gone where the food is. Mm. We don't always know where that is, but... You know, we can at least, I mean, I think it's a good news story, right? Like, we know that, well, we, we may not be able to find them, but that doesn't mean they're not there. They're they're out there somewhere.
0: Yeah, we have to have hope. There's a lot of, <laughs> lot, of, lot, we don't know. Yeah,
1: they haven't dropped off the face of the earth. They've, they've just simply gone to a place where, uh, you know, it's more productive.
0: For those of you tuning in, we're talking with Dan Bortolotti. He is the author of Wild Blue, A Natural History of the World's Largest Animal. And we've been discussing a lot about the animal's natural history this first part. We are just coming up on a break, so I'd like to ask you to please stay with us, Dan, and we will be back in just a few moments. You're tuning in to Ocean Currents on KWMR, and my name is Jennifer Stock. We'll be back in just a little bit. You're tuning in to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and on today's show, I'm talking with author Dan Bortolotti. He is the author of a new book called Wild Blue, A Natural History of the World's Largest Animal, and we're talking about blue whales, of course. So, Dan, I want to talk a bit about the, actually, the introduction of your book, Um, I'll admit I, I'm fairly young, so reading about this in-depth history of whaling was, was fairly new to me as far as the amount of details and locations. How did you find it to research this aspect of blue whales, and why did you choose to start the book with this gruesome history?
1: Well, I, I mean, just it made sense in terms of the chronology of the book. I mean, the, our, our real human's first uh, exposure to blue whales was as hunter. Um, you know, we it's only in the last couple of decades that we've come to appreciate them for their beauty and majesty and, you know, devoted a lot of scientific effort to it, for the first, you know, 60 years of the 20th century, our only exposure to blue whales was in our attempts to kill them. And so it was a really fascinating, albeit, you know, as you said, gruesome and and disturbing uh, history of our interaction with blue whales. But, you know, in uh, beginning about uh, the second decade of the 20th century, I mean, blue whales were the single, you know, most important targeted species of whales. Um, There had been, of course, whaling going on for over a 1,000 years, but it it tended to be smaller scale until the 20th century when we invented things like the uh, the harpoon cannon that was invented in the late 1800s and then, you know, steam-powered ships and factory vessels that were able to cut up and render the whales at sea. And all of this technology really conspired to... uh, um, you know, outmatch blue whales, who for a long time were able to escape whalers. I mean, whalers were never able to hunt blue whales in open boats and with hand harpoons. They were simply too fast. They were too big. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they sunk when, after you killed them, so they were virtually impossible to pull to shore. Uh, and they lived, in, mo- in most cases, so far offshore that it just wasn't practical to take them in open boats. Um, but all of that ended, you know, around um, 1904 was the first whaling expedition to the Antarctic, and in the 20 or 25 years after that, uh, blue whales died in enormous numbers. The the worst year was over 30,000 blue whales killed in one season. You know, to give you some uh, appreciation of that, that's about three times the current world population. And
0: that's just in one year.
1: Yeah, one year. One season, so it's like six months.
0: With an animal that has, I mean, such a large they're huge, and they obviously eat a lot of krill. It almost seems like taking those animals out of the food web would have a significant impact on populations of krill in a way. I'm wondering if people have theorized about that as far as what the ocean looked like earlier before we killed all these blue whales.
1: Yeah, do you mean like would there be more krill now? Right. I I don't think so. I think what's happened is that just other predators have been able to take advantage of krill in ways they may not have been able to when blue whales were, were feeding on it. I mean... One possible, you know, way of looking at that is, for example, uh, minke whales in the Antarctic now, well, there's been some, you know, question about whether these population numbers are accurate, but there are several hundred thousand minke whales living in the southern ocean now, whereas a hundred years ago there were far, far fewer, Mm. but there were a couple of hundred thousand blue whales. So I think what's happened is that species that weren't targeted as heavily as blue whales uh, have sort of moved in and, and, you know, been able to, to exploit that uh, prey, you know, that was left available for them.
0: Were blues targeted specifically because they're you get more bang for the buck. It's a bigger animal. It just seems like, God, oh, what a huge d- thing to deal with. And as you were saying, the technology advanced, and so they were able to be able to harvest blue whales. But I just, it seems like it's just too big of an animal to handle. But they, yeah.
1: But of course, you know, the the, the trade-off is that the the cost is uh, the cost might be a little bit higher, but the payoff is so much higher. I mean, a single blue whale, you know, could yield far more oil than, I mean, it would even yield about double what a fin whale would, which is the second largest species of whale. And so it was it was worth it. And, I mean, in fact, I, I spoke to whalers who, you know, told us we used to shoot over the backs of fin whales to get a blue whale that was farther away because wow. it was, they were just so much larger and so much more desirable than any other species that they were really the focus, you know and in fact in in some early years when blue whales were still abundant there were more blue whales killed than all other species of whales combined so hmm. uh, there's no question that they were the uh, number one target
0: what were the world activities that stimulated the whaling industry or is it products in demand and the use yeah, of the meat
1: it, it's kind of interesting cuz when most people think of whaling they think of you know like yankee whaling and uh uh, where you know where sperm whales were hunted for uh, for their oil, which was used to make uh, lamp fuel and things like that uh, we We think of uh, right whales that were hunted for their baleen and things like that, or even their meat. Um, a lot of people are surprised to find out that blue whales were actually hunted really for two main purposes, and that was to make soap and to make margarine. Oh um, they have an enormous amount of blubber and fat of course, which um, at In the early uh, 20th century, we invented the process called hydrogenation, which is what makes your margarine a solid at room temperature rather than a liquid. And before that, whale oil wasn't really practical to be used for things like that, but hydrogenation made it possible to use uh, whale oil and other oils that were liquid at room temperature to make solid fats like margarine and also to turn them into hard soaps. And uh, there was also, by the... 40s and 50s and a little bit later, it was even used to make pet food in Europe. Um, Sometimes it wasn't even known. Like, I think most people who would have bought pet food that was made from whale meat would not have known the source, and probably would not have bought it had they known the source. Not necessarily because they objected to whaling, because, you know, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, nobody objected to whaling. Um, It was only, you know, after the 60s and the environmental movement that, that the real that the conservation ethic began to develop, but m- many people felt that you know whale meat, for example, it's, it never really caught on in Europe outside of Norway. Perhaps um, people just thought it was smelly and unhygienic and a bit disgusting, but uh, they didn't necessarily object to it on ethical grounds.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you write about that in the book. As far as the anti anti whaling era didn't really begin to the 1960s and whatnot. What were what were the things that really turned people on? around about whales, it seems like, it just seems so late to me in the the scale of (laughs) conservation and awareness about animals that we didn't care about whales until the 60s. And what was some of the stimulus that helped with that? Well, I I think really, you
1: know, the main reason for that was that whales were simply so far removed from people's daily lives, there was really no opportunity for people to get to know whales and feel any compassion for them. Yeah, we
0: didn't have the technology to see them, I guess, or get out like that.
1: No, I mean, you know, even I think the first pandas were exhibited in zoos in the 30s, for example. Uh, People would have been familiar with exotic animals, uh, you know, in the middle of the 20th century for sure, but not whales. I mean, remember, we didn't have Shamu, the killer whale, or Flipper, the dolphin, until the 50s and 60s. And um, even marine biologists would not have had that much opportunity to see see whales um, alive. And certainly blue whales, you know, were... They may well have been from from Mars, you know, for people before the 1960s. And then, of course, by the 1960s, whalers had killed so many of them that there were very few anyway. Even if you wanted to see them, there would be very little opportunity. So it's kind of interesting. I think that, you know, the environmental movement that arose, you know, after Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring and Earth Day in 1970 and these kind of things, But one of the things that that I was able to find out, I think, really had an effect on people was the first recordings of humpback whale sounds, Mm -hmm. which would have been made in the late 60s and first made public in the early 70s. Um, And of course, at the time, people didn't really make much of a distinction between humpback whales and blue whales the way, you know, people do today. They just thought of large whales as more or less the same kind of animal. But they started to think, wow, these animals are, I mean, listen to these songs. They're haunting and they're beautiful and these animals must be so intelligent. And uh, they started to reflect on the whaling history and say, look, we almost brought these animals to extinction. And there was a sort of collective guilt about it. And and I think as people started to become more sensitive to whales, they looked for a species that they could you know, turn into a conservation icon. And so they logically chose the largest whale. I mean, most people knew, even in the 60s and 70s, that blue whales were the largest animal in the world. They, even if they had never seen one or seen even a picture of one, they knew that. And they knew that we had pushed them to the brink of extinction. And so because it was the animal with all the superlatives, it seemed to be the one that people latched on to when yeah. they began to you know, the save the whales movement.
0: Now, you talk with a couple of whalers in your book, and I'm curious when you talked with them, did they have a change in opinion about whaling as we see it today, that it's not necessarily sustainable, it's a very controversial issue internationally, but did any of them have any remorse or regret for doing what they did?
1: I wouldn't characterize it as remorse or regret, and you know, and I I took a bit of heat for this from some people when when I wrote the book, because I bent over backwards to make it clear that I wasn't trying to be judgmental about you know, people who worked on whaling ships right. 60 and 70 years ago. I mean, it's very important that we not look at people through the moral lens of, of 2009. Right. Um, you know, uh, the yes, I, I, I contacted a number of whalers who actually worked in the Antarctic in, in the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, all of them, I mean, the, the ones that I spoke to anyway said, look, you know, we're well aware that whaling is simply no longer appropriate today, and it's totally unnecessary. Right, there, there are right. no whale products that we can't get through other means, and uh, you know they recognize now that a lot of these animals are endangered species, and none of them would advocate a return to whaling today. But you know they said to us, you know, you have to understand, it was a different period. I mean, it was, to me, it would be like, you know, a hundred years from now, when when it's become a societal norm for no one to eat beef, to look back at butchers and say that, you know, how could they possibly have committed these, you know, immoral acts and do they regret it? The, the consciousness was just completely different, and mm-hmm. these were just guys earning a living, working very hard, uh, uh, you know, doing a dangerous and adventurous job, and uh, you know, they, they also told me specifically that when they when they watched the whales being harpooned, you know, he said every everybody on the ship really did their best to make sure that the whale died as quickly and you know as relatively painlessly as possible. Now, there's no question that the whales suffered tremendously when they were shot. With harpoons, but uh, you know, I do believe that that most of them would have made an effort to try to bring about as swift of a of a death as they could, and I just didn't find it appropriate for me to to judge these people, and and some of them have become friends that I've kept in touch with, and you know, I feel really privileged to have been able to, to speak to these guys and learn a little bit more about the lives that they led,
0: and we learn from history. That's how we learn for the future is we look at the past. And I think that's a, 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 well, a point met, well made in this book is that look at this huge period of time and what happened and what we did learn and, and look where we are now. So I think you made that a very strong point in your book. Um, one of the interesting points that really stuck me was a comment um, in discussion with Farley Mowat, a conservationist, and you wrote, he writes that the amount of information we know about blue whales could be summed up in a high school paper, if that, Um, back in 1972. Do you think we've uh, moved way past that through the last uh, 20, 30 years or so in the research where we're filling in a little bit more of the details? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, we definitely have. And, I mean, you know, the the reason for that is simply that we've been able to, um, you know, design technologies that have taken us, uh, you know, I, I make the point in the book that, um, these tags that I discussed earlier, in, in you know, in, in the hour when we were talking about the time depth sensors and things that, you know, we've been able to attach to the back of whales in order to measure their movements underwater, I mean, those have done for whale research what the microscope did for biology, mm. and you know, what the telescope did for astronomy. Um, it's just brought that world so much closer. Um, There's still an awful lot of things we don't know and may never know about blue whales. You know, what what their vocalizations mean, what how they communicate with each other, how they find their food. We still don't know these things. But we are getting closer to understanding a lot of these things because we have been able to design technologies that have allowed us to track their movements and, you know, uh, uh, follow them underwater and uh, collect data about them when we can't, you know, be there to observe them directly.
0: You actually made a good point, too, as well. It's hard for people to connect with things they can't see And that's one of our biggest challenges still to this day about making people aware about the ocean and how important it is to their health and their daily lives. And for people that don't interact with it, it's a big challenge. So I think it links the whole issue about the whaling earlier that people didn't really know about whales because they didn't see them and whatnot. And it's the same thing for today for ocean conservation. You did spend some time with Richard Sears, a biologist in the Atlantic Ocean, and John Kalambakitis, a researcher here on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Um, what were some of the things you got to do in the field with them? Did you get to go out on some of these boats to yeah. talk with them and learn? And tell us about some of these adventures.
1: Yeah, that that was, you know, of course, the most exciting part of the book was that I was able to talk both of them into uh, taking me out on their boats for a couple of weeks. I, I spent um, some time, you know, staying with each of them and, and going out each day to, to witness their field work. So bo- both John uh, Bakitas and Richard Sears who work in, opposite parts of the continent, Uh, but they have similar techniques. They go out in uh, small uh, 18, 20-foot rigid-hull inflatable boats with outboard engines that can take them up to about 50 miles offshore safely. You don't want to go too much further than that. Um, uh, What they do is they just kind of patrol certain areas where they know that the whales are going to be, uh, and both of them are really remarkable at being able to spot whales from a great distance. I mean, there were so many times where, you know, one of them would say, there's one. And I would say, where? And I'm looking <laughs> around. And of course, you know, it's a mile in the distance. There was this very subtle blow that they happened to see. They could even hear them. I could like, you could hear the exhalations of the whales that that were lost on me. But, you know, from all those years in the field, they have these really honed uh, instincts. And then they will, you know, pilot the boats alongside uh, the, the typical um, thing that they do in the field is they try to photograph each side of the whale so they can identify it using the photo ID techniques, which are similar to the way you know, uh, police investigators match fingerprints. Each whale has a unique pattern of uh, mottled uh, coloration on its back. Um, sometimes they will take a biopsy sample, because that's the only way that you can determine the sex of a whale, by analyzing the DNA in its skin. Mm-hmm. And uh, they record where the whale was seen, and then they'll have to go home and match that whale to the others in their database so they can see, well, this whale was seen in this area one year, and two years later we saw it here. And slowly they've both been able to piece together these catalogs of blue whale populations in their study areas. And, uh, I mean, I think John has at least fourteen, fifteen hundred 1,500 whales in his catalog. Uh, Richard Sears' catalog in the Atlantic is much smaller just because the population is much smaller. It's somewhere around 400 animals. Oh, wow. Um, but... Uh, they, uh, they, you know, they, it was such a privilege to be able to work with these guys, and uh, I'm so grateful to them for, you know, trusting me to, uh, you know, allow me into that world and, and report on their work. So.
0: For those tuning in, my name is Jennifer Stock. This is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Dan Bordeletti, an author of a book called Wild Blue: A Natural History of the World's Largest Animal. We're talking about blue whales. So back to the research part and the the scientists, I can imagine uh, this is a tough life for these folks. They have to spend weeks at sea, rough conditions, and then come back and pour themselves into data and photographs. I I mean, is this a challenge for bringing more scientists in the field of marine science and marine mammals specifically?
1: Yeah that that's a great question you know because I mean you're right it, it it is difficult in a lot of ways I think both Richard and John tell you they can't imagine doing anything else yeah. they love being out on the water like that but you know that, that is a really interesting point you know we said about a challenge of attracting new scientists to the field because you know just in my you know couple of years research doing this book I did notice that most of the younger scientists you encounter tend to be much more technically oriented so they you know, they they can build mathematical models, and they can use computers to, uh, you know, do various sort of population models and data analysis of acoustics and things like that. But, you know, the it's the old guard, like Richard Sears and John Kalamvikias, who are both in their 50s now, who are really the, you know, at the vanguard, right? They were the trailblazers. They were the guys who just got out in the boats and, and witnessed firsthand, you know, where these animals were. There, I don't know that the, that the next generation is ready to do that. I mean, and maybe they don't need to. Maybe, maybe you know the field work at some point becomes this you know, law of diminishing returns, right? There's, you, you can't just go out and photograph the same whales over and over for decades. but But certainly those guys who were working in the field in the small boats and leaving all of or, you know, much of the data analysis and mathematical modeling to, to their younger colleagues and students. It is a bit of a of a changing of the guard, I think, a little mm. bit of a passing the torch, and I think both of those guys have a more of a romantic streak than I think a lot of the younger generations of uh, of scientists have. You know, um, that's
0: an interesting perspective.
1: I, I I spoke to blue whale blue whale scientists, and I'll call them that, who never saw who'd never seen a blue whale before.
0: Oh wow!
1: Right, I mean, <laughs> and I, I it took me a while to to get my head around, but then I realized. Well, that's not their job. Their job isn't to go out and do the field work, it's to do the data analysis.
0: Well, it's it's true. I mean how many of us have seen Mars or Saturn and how much do we know about those places except mm-hmm. their pictures?
1: Well and and that's a good point because there are just like that, there are astronomers who never look through a telescope. Yeah. Right? I mean who who do all of their work on computers and with with modeling. So it's uh, uh, you know, I would not en- <laughs> I would encourage to almost anybody who is interested in, in studying the science of these animals to get out and Absolutely. see them first, and you have to have some kind of connection with them.
0: Your most recent books before this was called Hope and in Hell, Inside the World of Doctors Without Borders, and you traveled um, in the Middle East and elsewhere profiling doctors that are traveling to help provide humanitarian aid all over the world. Did you find any similarities in the personalities of these doctors with the profiles of the researchers who are trying to understand and save these endangered species.
1: That's that's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought too much about the the parallels between the two books, but you know what what I did find um, I think that in both cases, you know, both the uh, people doing humanitarian aid work and and scientists working in the field, one thing that I think that both of them appreciate is. You know, people from the outside who, who take the time to understand what they do, because I would say one parallel between them is both of them are in a lot of ways misunderstood and I think it's because a lot of the media reports that you read you know both about humanitarian aid and about science are done by people who don't have much of an understanding of the field and uh, you know the reporting is superficial and it's full of cliches and misunderstandings and things and I don't pretend to be an expert in either field but you know what I what I tried to do with both of these books was to really listen carefully to the people who were telling me their stories, and uh, you know checking all my facts diligently and making sure that I presented their work, uh, you know, in a way that was accurate. And and I I found I think both groups really appreciate that because it's something that they don't don't often get.
0: Yeah, it's but. also a nice read for those of us that aren't scientists. It really brings a lot of science to us in a great way. So my kudos to you as an author for translating that so well.
1: Well, thanks. I always tell people that sometimes it helps to not have a background in the subject that you're writing about because... You know, I, I ask the same questions that my readers will be asking. Right. And, and I try to answer in a way that I would understand if someone was explaining it to me. Oh, that's okay. Uh, so I don't slip into jargon, and I don't, uh, I don't have all kinds of assumptions about what people should already know. And, that's great. Uh,
0: it helps. So as far as the future now for these animals, I mean, we've had a hard, heavy past, and we've learned a lot from that as far as the importance of preserving these animals. What are their biggest threats today, now that whaling um, has banned hunting of blue whales? What are their biggest threats today as far as coming back or or surviving in a changing ocean?
1: Well, there's two that stand out. I I would say that the first one, which will be well-known, well, both of them are well-known to people in California, is um, is ship strikes. Uh, I last, or I guess it was the summer of 2007, I believe there were four blue whales killed uh, when they were struck by large ships in in the Santa Barbara Channel and other uh, busy shipping lanes. What we've what we found, or what scientists have learned, is that uh, they believe that at night, um, you know, whales sleep, if you will, by milling about close to the surface and diving only very short distances and then popping right back up. And when they are close to the surface at night, they're just invisible to ships. I mean, mm. even during the day, they're invisible to large ships. And they are sitting ducks in a lot of ways for for big ships that are coming through these lanes. And the Santa Barbara Channel, which is not only a busy shipping lane but also a very you know popular hotspot for blue whale feeding, um, it, it, there's just so much potential for for large ships to, to to kill these animals. And you know they're so large, and we we think in a lot of ways of them being as invulnerable. But you know a cargo ship hitting a blue whale is like a transport truck hitting a mosquito, uh, and it would it would Uh, In in some cases, the whales are are, are killed and they're found bloated and floating on the surface. But who knows how many whales are struck and sink to the bottom before anyone ever detects it. Uh, And so I think that's probably the, well, that's certainly the major uh, problem for fatalities of blue whales today. The other big uh, concern is one that isn't killing them per se, but we don't know what long-term effect it's going to have, and that is uh, sound in the ocean. Um, blue whales had these very low-frequency vocalizations that they used to communicate over great distances. And, you know, the ability to make those sounds evolved in a time where the oceans were silent. And today, with the amount of shipping traffic we have all over the world and with the great distances that those engine noises travel, uh, you know, it would be like people trying to whisper in a crowded room. And... Scientists are concerned that blue whales, you know, who probably use these vocalizations in order to keep in touch with each other, you know, and, and breed and mate, um, may find it increasingly difficult to stay in touch and find one another. And uh, if that's the case, it may affect their reproductive success and, and their population numbers might dwindle. And it may go some way to explaining why, even though we banned blue whale hunting 40 years ago, you know, the animals don't seem to have recovered to, to the levels that one might expect.
0: Probably hard for them to find mates at this point, with, with hardly any around.
1: Well, it's, I mean, even in areas where they're fairly common, I mean, we have to remember, we think of, of animals as keeping in touch with each other visually, but of course, whales almost certainly do not do that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. any like a body length for a whale, if it's 75, 80 feet, there's no way an animal can see 75 or 80 feet underwater, or at least a whale can. not So they're keeping in touch with each other through sound. And if they're not able to pick up and decode those sounds because of background noise, we don't know how difficult it might be for them to stay in touch. And that certainly is a danger.
0: Yeah. So as far as recommendations for readers and, and listeners, as far as getting involved in these issues and helping to protect the whales as well as the larger ocean ecosystem, is there, are there any recommendations you have for listeners about getting involved in What's the most important thing they can do to help help with the conservation of our ocean?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, specifically to, to blue whales, I think one of the ways they can do that is by uh, is by supporting and sponsoring research. Because, uh, you know, and I, I say right at the end of the book, I think the biggest threat to blue whales has always been human ignorance. I mean, there's just so many things about the, the whale that we don't understand and so many things about the ocean that we don't understand. And we have to contribute to uh... research in order to to learn more and you know in this economic client or climate uh... you know research funding is drying up everywhere and uh... you know one great opportunity um, it's the, the one i know i here in uh, in canada in quebec uh... richard sears work uh... in the saint lawrence uh, he does ecotourism and uh... people from all over the world <laughs> visit him every year and are able to go out on the boats with him for a whole week and um you know they they get to participate in the research directly and uh, you know the money they pay for that privilege helps to go sponsor the research and uh, so uh that you know there are some opportunities to do that but you know I, as we said earlier it's very hard for people to, i think to uh, appreciate you know the conservation issues involved or the importance of protecting animals unless they have some sort of contact with them so you know i'd encourage people especially in california there's so many opportunities to go out and uh and, and sea whales including blues um, and it's very moving and i think a lot of people will find that you know, maybe they never gave a lot of thought to this issue in in the past but you know when you see a blue whale swim underneath your boat <laughs> you can't help but be moved yes, by them definitely that, uh, and i think getting out and having that first-hand contact is is really valuable
0: where can listeners uh find a copy of your book wild blue a natural history of the world's largest animal
1: it should be widely available in bookstores uh, throughout the state and throughout the U.S. and Canada, uh, and of course, it's also available online at Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble and Borders and the usual suspects. It should be quite easy to find.
0: Thank you very much for joining us on Ocean Currents today, and thank you very much for the time you spent writing and researching about this book. It's just a fantastic compilation of science and natural history and and human history, and it helps to shape the future for this incredible animal. So thank you for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: We've been talking with Dan Portolotti, author of Wild Blue, a natural history of the world's largest animal. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.